And so as Chris said, I'm Dan Swartz. I'm the youth pastor here, and, and I have the privilege not just of working with amazing young people like those three, but of bringing God's word to us this morning. And so before we dive in, I want to ask you guys a question. How many of you know what one of these is? <laughs> Who owns one of these? Raise your hand. Okay. There's, there's at least like one adult. What comes to mind? <laughs> what comes to mind? Or maybe a better question. Who comes to mind when you think of one of these? Because I don't own one of these because I would do, like, it's probably bad that I brought it up here because I might not be able to preach. But I think we have something that comes to mind when we think of these spinners. Because I, I know for me, the first time I saw one was in my seventh grade boys small group. And normally, they would bust in with their water bottles and try and flip them and land them on the edge. And I was used to that, right? I'd just collect the water bottles and say, you guys are lame. This is how you do it, right? Um, <laughs> but one day, they came in all with these. And I was like, I don't know what to do. What is happening? And they're like, Dan, they're called spinners. Uh, they help us pay attention. And I was like, no, they don't. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I think as adults, right, we have a certain identity that goes along with these kind of devices, right? Like crazy, like you can't sit still, like you need something to distract you. Maybe not, but let's try something else. What about this right here? What comes to mind, or better question, who comes to mind when you think of Snapchat? Now, by Snapchats, yeah, I hear the giggles, okay? Wait, there's funny punchlines coming, there aren't. Um, but Snapchat's own data says that, that 35 and under is 80% of the people that use their app. And from my experience, I do have the app, but I mostly communicate with young people with it. And so I think this app does describe young people, and yet when we think of Snapchat and the young people that use it, I think we have an association with it of like, the text disappears so it's used for no good, or like, why don't they just text one another? Like, what's wrong with these immature younger snappers or wimmer snickers or... We have an idea that goes along with not just Snapchat, but those who use it. I want to throw one more image on the screen. What do you think of when you see this? Or maybe a better question is who? Because when I started here, uh, it was last August, last July, uh, it was right during the Olympics. And Chris and I had this conversation several times uh, of how amazing some of these young people competing in the Olympics really were. And for me, when I see that symbol, I think of someone named Simone Biles. And Simone was, uh, as you can see, a very decorated Olympian at the young age of 19. And if you, if you Google her, you'll find out that having won a combined total of 19 Olympic and World Championship medals, she is the most decorated American gymnast, having taken over the title from Shannon Miller, who held it for since 96. And with her win in Rio, she became the sixth woman to have won an individual all-round title at both the World Championships and the Olympic Games. And with four Olympic golds this year, she set an American record for the most gold medals in women's gymnastics at a single game. And I think... Maybe you watched her compete and you were amazed. And it's easy to picture her as this. And yet, she's 19. And this is also Simone Biles. That is her and Zac Efron. And she let slip that she had a little celebrity crush on Zac Efron. And so they surprised her with his presence on national TV. And he actually gives her a kiss and before on the cheek. And before, before he comes out, she goes, don't bring him out yet. I'm going to faint. 
right? And he gives her a kiss and she's, ah! Because she's still a teenager. And yet, she's an Olympian. And I don't know about you, but I find it hard sometimes to hold both of those perspectives at the same time. And when you look at our teenagers, do you see Snapchat, fidget, someone that needs to be controlled and contained? Or do you see an Olympian? Not even a future Olympian, a current Olympian. How do we, as a church, celebrate them as young people and empower them as Olympians? And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to dig into that question. Because on Youth Sunday, many churches ask similar questions to this. They look at the data and they say, well, we lose a lot of our college freshmen. They lose the faith. They leave. And so how do we keep them? And while I think that is an important topic, I think that's the wrong question. Because that question comes out of a fear of losing. It's a fear that our young people won't stay and follow Christ. It's a fear that we haven't done all we could. But at Emmanuel, we don't want to do anything out of fear but we hope we do something out of the power of the gospel. And so our question is, how do we offer something that's more compelling than fear? And again, this is not a bad question. It comes out of real data. The Fuller Youth Institute, if you go to their website and click on the research tab, it says that nearly half of graduating high school seniors go on to struggle with their faith in college. And LifeWay Research and Ministry Development did a similar study in 2007, and the findings really haven't changed in the last 10 years. They said that 70% will leave the faith in college, and only 35% will eventually return. Seven in 10 Protestants ages 18 to 30 who went to church regularly in high school said they quit attending by the age of 23, and 34% of those said they had not returned even sporadically by age 30. And the research goes on to say that that means about one in four Protestant young people have left the church. And the most frequent reasons for this are, you know, I just didn't have time. I needed a break. Uh, The path toward college and the workforce pushed them out. I, I just didn't have time with all of my responsibilities. And my question is, how do we give them a vision that is more compelling than those responsibilities, that is part of those responsibilities. And to, to exemplify this, Chris has been uh, referencing an author named Brennan Manning over our last series who wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. He also wrote this book called The Importance of Being Foolish, How to Think Like Jesus. And this is a book that we'll be giving to our graduating seniors once it comes in off of Amazon. And we do that because we want them to leave and consider, how do I think like Jesus now outside of the church? And he has a quote in here that really applies to what we're talking about today. He says this, Jesus Christ lived and died and rose in order to form the holy people of God, a community of Christians who would live under the sway of the spirit, men and women who would be human torches aglow with the fire of love for Christ, prophets and lovers ignited with the flaming spirit of the living God. And that's the kind of community that we want here at Emmanuel. We want to give young people a vision of the gospel and of the church that is so compelling that we're not afraid to send them out, but we know that they're not going to be changed by the world. They're going to be world changers. We don't want to be afraid to send our young people, but empowered to say, go, 
and do. So if you're a note taker, uh, I invite you to pull out your notes. Uh, you'll see on there that we have three fill-in-the-blank sections and also a big blank space at the bottom, and that's intentional because I don't think that I've identified everything God wants to say to you in those three notes. And so I encourage you to take notes in that bottom section as well. But the first note is this. It's that followers of Jesus are not to be changed by the world, but are to be world changers. And that means you and that means our young people. Not changed by the world, but world changers. And so the question that that begs is, how do we do it? You know, clearly the church hasn't mastered this or we wouldn't be losing so many young people. That, that question wouldn't come up. And when I come to questions like this, questions that are big, I turn to Jesus. So we're going to do the same thing. If you have your Bible and you'd like to follow along, turn to Matthew chapter 10. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, I encourage you, we have Bibles by both our exits. Grab one and take it home. It's our gift to you this morning. But before we get there, I want to ask one more question. I have to ask you to, you know, picture who you think of when you think of spinners and Snapchat and the Olympics. What about when you think of Jesus' disciples? What do you picture? It's probably something like this, right? These are images from a popular movie about Jesus called The Passion of the Christ. How old do you think those guys look? You can yell it out. This is class time. 30, 40, 100. I heard that. <laughs> but I, I think this, this exemplifies a problem with sometimes how we read the Bible, that we look at movies that may or may not be based on the text and we make assumptions that those things are true. We actually don't have descriptors of how old the apostles are or were. But we have some hints. Let me put it to you this way. Jesus calls James and John, the sons of Zebedee, as one of his, or two of his first disciples. And when he calls them, they're fishing in a boat with their father. And in the Jewish educational system, they would do public school or whatever you want to call it until about age 12. And at age 12, if they were exceptional, they would try and get a rabbi to accept them as disciples. And if they were average, they would go home and they would learn the trade of their father. And so thinking of James and John working with their dad, they're probably not old enough yet to have taken that trade and gone off on their own, but they're still working with pops. And Jesus actually calls these two in Mark 3.17, the sons of thunder. Does that bring in mind like 30, 40-year-old? Or does that bring to mind seventh grade boy? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I have an idea of what that looks like. And so, realistically, these guys might have been a little bit older than 12, 13, 14 years old. But maybe you're not convinced. Maybe that's not enough data for you. Uh, take this, for example. In Exodus chapter 30, verses 14 and 15, Jewish law states that every male over 20 is supposed to pay a tax when they go to the temple. And the only person we see paying that tax among the disciples is Peter. He actually talks to Jesus about it, and Jesus is like, hey, go fishing and grab the coin and pay for me and you. We don't hear anything about the rest of the disciples. Is that because the authors neglected to put it in there? Or is it because they're under 20? And if you're still not convinced that maybe our depiction of the apostles is a little older than it should be, consider John. We know that John wrote the book of Revelation, and we think that book was written around 96 AD. And if that's true, and John wrote it and died sometime after that, that's like 66 years after Jesus died. 
And at that time, he's ancient already, no matter how young he was. And so it's not uncommon for scholars to believe that John was 13 or 14 years old. And so today, I want to dig in to what Jesus did with the next generation. If Jesus' disciples were teenagers, even if they were 18, 19 years old, I think he can teach us something about what it looks like to disciple the next generation and about the answer to the question of building a compelling community. So let's do it. Matthew chapter 10. But before we get to Matthew chapter 10, let's look at what Jesus does building up to this. Because in Matthew 10, we see Jesus sending out his 12 disciples. But before he does that, if you look in chapter 5, 6, and 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most extensive collections of teachings that go above and beyond what his listeners would be used to. They talk about what life is like in the kingdom of God. There's talk about blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. There's talk about you have heard it said an eye for an eye, but I say to you, let him take your coat and your bag. And you've said walk one mile, walk two miles. He keeps elevating what life looks like in the kingdom. And Jesus teaches them about loads of things. I invite you sometimes just open it up. If you don't want to read it because it's too much, well, too bad you should. But just read the headings. This is an extensive teaching. But then after this, in chapters 8 and 9, he doesn't stop with teaching. Because teaching is something that we're really good at as a church. Right? Your pastors have gone to seminary. They've put in time to study this hours and hours and hours to try and understand what the writers were saying and what God is communicating through this book. And we spend a lot of time every week preparing messages to try and teach and try and communicate truths. But what we don't do well as a church a lot of times is go beyond that. A lot of times we stop there. And a lot of times we encourage you to stop there. You know, we don't say that there's more. And Jesus doesn't stop there. He provides extensive teaching, but then he does something else. In chapters 8 and 9, we see Jesus exposing his disciples to the power of God. In chapter 8, he heals a man with leprosy, along with many other people, including Peter's mother-in-law, the only recorded married follower of Jesus or disciple. Um, he calms the storm when his disciples are afraid. He heals leprosy. And even casts out demons. Jesus exposes his disciples not just to true teaching, but to the power of God. And my question for us is, do we do that? Do we do that with our students? Do we do that with you? Have you experienced the power of God in your life? Or have we just taught you a lot about it? Because honestly, if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, but you haven't experienced the power of Jesus, it is a hard teaching. It is shackles. But when you partner it with the power of God, it is life-giving and it is freedom. And so Jesus exposes his disciples to what God can do and will do in this new kingdom. And he teaches them. And then finally, in chapters 8 and 9, he challenges them. He tells them about the cost of following Jesus, that it will not be easy. But he also tells them that there's a need. At the very end of chapter 9, going into chapter 10, he says this, The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into his fields. And then Jesus does something that we try to do with our students as well. He says, hey, you guys just prayed for it? You got to be willing to do what you're praying for. And so he sends them out into the harvest. 
And so, beginning in chapter 10, Jesus says this in verse 1. Jesus called the 12 disciples together and gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and illness. Remember, remember, this is teenagers. He says, Go and announce to the people of Israel that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, and cast out demons. Give as freely as you have received. How many adults are anxious right now? Because if you picture these as teenagers, you don't even give the teenager, the 13-year-old, the 15-year-old, the keys to your 96 Camry. And he's given them the keys to the infant kingdom of God. This is early in Jesus' ministry. He says, hey, you guys have seen me do this. You've heard me teach. You've seen me cast out demons. Your turn. Here you go. And what's amazing is not just that Jesus, Jesus is willing to do this, but it works. And so, I, again, if you're a note taker, I invite you to write this down. We cannot focus so heavily on morality, that we neglect to provide an experience of the immortal Savior. Jesus teaches them how to live in the kingdom of God and provides them an experience of what it looks like. Not just a passive experience, but then an active one. He sends them out to go and do it. And my favorite part about this is like, he, it's all things Jesus has done, gives them authority to cast out evil spirits, heal every kind of disease, and announce the kingdom of heaven is near. But it, it gets even better because in Luke chapter 10, verse 17, we have a parallel account of this where Jesus sends out 72 of his followers rather than just the 12. And they come back and they're like, it worked! Even the demons obey us! And can you imagine, like, this teenager coming back and like, holy smokes, we did the same thing you did. Don't we want that? Do you have that same kind of excitement about following Jesus? Do our students, do we give them opportunities? Do you have opportunities where you can be the hands and feet of God? Our kids director, Melissa Knutson, said something really profound to me. Uh, to all of us in our director's meeting this month. She said that in order to move something from your head to your heart, you got to use your hands. And that's what we see Jesus doing. He empowers his disciples to do with their hands so that the teaching does not remain in their heads, but becomes a part of who they are. And what's great is then they come back to Jesus and continue to learn and continue to grow. And he only had them for three years. His ministry on earth lasted three years. I've got some of you teenagers for like seven. And so, man, you better be doing more than that because. But in all seriousness, only three years later, we come to Matthew chapter 28. And we see Jesus saying this as his last words to his disciples in the book of Matthew. He says, I have been given all authority on heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach those new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so after just three years where he has sent them out and they've come back to him and they've continued to see him, learn, and grow through him. They really don't fully get it until this moment, right? They haven't seen him 
raised from the dead until recently. And so they've just got the whole thing, but they've still been practicing it. They've still been doing it. And here Jesus sends them out and releases them as empowered and tells them they are not alone. And so again, if you're a note taker, I invite you to write this down. That as the church, young and old, we are sent out, we are empowered, and we are not alone. And Again, this is what I hope, this is the joy that we have in sending these seniors off to college because we're not afraid of sending them. Instead, we are excited because we're releasing them to go and do what they have already been doing, working in the kids' church and leading us in worship. We hope that they go out and change the world as they have been doing at Emmanuel outside of these walls. But my favorite part about what Jesus says is that last part, that they will not be alone, that he will be with them. And it's so easy for us to gloss over that and to forget that these are still teenagers. Even if they were 19 years old, this is a 22-year-old who is being handed the keys and saying like, hey, I'm going to the Father. This is your job now. And I know that's scary, but you've done it. So I know you can do it. And I'll be with you. And for us as a church, that means that Jesus is with us the Holy Spirit dwells inside believers, but it also means that we as the church are with us. That when we send out our high schoolers, we don't send them out alone into the world, but we send them out with all of Emmanuel's might behind them. It's why when we do give our seniors this book, I write a little note about two-thirds of the way through that says, hey, how you doing? What do you think of the book so far? Give me a call. It's because we want them to come back to us whatever they're going, whether they're in Point Loma, California, or right down the street, we want them to know that we are their church, that they are the church, and that they're not alone. <laughs> I, every time I talk about this, I get so fired up, and I get so many chills, and I'm like, ah, let's just do this all day, but uh, we have a time constraint. And so, <laughs> let's fast forward to the book of Acts, chapter 2, because today is Pentecost Sunday. Today is the day that we celebrate what happened in Acts, chapter 2. And spoilers, what happened was this small group of potentially teenagers gathered with other disciples to pray in an upstairs room and the Holy Spirit descended and God used them to save 3,000 souls in one day. Don't we want to be that kind of church? Don't we want to inspire our teenagers to do likewise? And don't we want to be inspired ourselves as adults to see that happen? I firmly believe that if we follow the pattern of Jesus, that this is what he can do. And so as we move toward closing, Brennan Manning has another quote, which I think hits the nail on the head for how we do this as a church. He says that there is nobody in the Christian community who is not called to continual conversion. There is no one who does not have before him still the labor of building up the image of Christ Jesus in his life by the steady practice day by day of the Christian virtues. We need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves daily and we need to do it together and we need to expect the power of Jesus in our lives. And that's why, as Chris said, we send our students out to use their hands on, on Mission Mexico coming up in just over a month, in Go Serve coming up at the end of June where we do this together as a family, uh, on, on Sunday afternoons where we gather and do spiritual disciplines as high schoolers, at the color powdered games where teenagers are throwing powder together, we treat one another in a certain way because we are the hands of Jesus. And it's that why you kids learn in kids' church 
to make the wise choice and that Jesus loves you, but also to reset the room and respect your surroundings because you are the church now. And we want the community center to be like, man, they treat our church or our building with such respect. We love having them here. There's something different. And we know that that's the gospel. And so our invitation as a church is to experience God with us. It's an invitation to be the people of God for the kingdom of God as the people of God. And so in light of that invitation, I want to share with you what one youth pastor asked his students. He asked his seniors and his young adults, he said, if you could have one thing from the church, if you could change something, what would it be? And these were their responses. They said, we want authenticity, not just putting a good side forward. Honesty and vulnerability about what really goes on in your life. We want mutuality, not just top-down governance, but mentors who respect us in return, allowing us to add value to their lives too. We want inspiration rather than control. Give us encouragement and room to dream our dreams outside of the boxes that you might be used to. We want valid as opposed to trivial involvement in the body of the church. Don't just give us the youth stuff. And that's why you were surrounded by students this morning. We hope that is not just something that happens on Youth Sunday, but every week. And it isn't. But this is my favorite one. Stop praying for us and start praying with us. If we want to treat our students like they are the church of today and not just the church of tomorrow, we need to bring them in. We want courage instead of fearing to evaluate traditional structures. Let's ask why we do what we do. Let's be learners and not protectors. Walk with us instead of towing the party line through the truth of scripture. Invite us to struggle with what is not clear. Our students have something to bring that we adults don't in their energy, in their excitement. But we are all empowered to be spiritual Olympians. And so I close with this. Our invitation Experience God with us. Young and old, whatever your age, we are in this together. We can offer you the invitation, but you have to choose to come. Let's pray. God, you, you teach us difficult things. You offer hard truth, and yet you give us something that is so good in the gospel. God, I pray that we would experience the power of God in our lives, not just through what you have taught us, but what you do through us. Be with us in this place, in your name. Amen.